It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. In my career, I have interviewed many musicians, but we had certain guidelines and restrictions on what we could talk about due to the record labels. It was always about the music and never about their personal life or the things that they had gone through. But I was lucky enough to have had many intimate conversations off the record, which gave me an introspective look and appreciation for those who gave so much of themselves to the world with their music. We often forget the human side of these artists And today, I am honored that I get to share the airwaves in a much different fashion with one of them. Kelly Smith is a founding member of the metal band Flotsam and Jetsam. Growing up here in Phoenix, I remember being out at the storage yards where all the bands would practice in front of live audiences. Flotsam was one of those bands that many of us got the chance to see before they hit the big time. And Kelly is no stranger to life's tough dealings having gone through many challenges personally. He left the band back in 1997, eventually rejoining in 2011, but had to make his final exit in 2014 after his family suffered major loss and tragedy. Kelly is here to share his story of success, hardship, heartache, and survival. You know, Kelly, I really do enjoy the conversations you and I have had off air the last couple times and even today. So I'm really grateful that you're here today to share your story with us. You are definitely an inspiration with everything you've been through, and I couldn't be thankful enough to have you here sharing your journey with us and telling us what it was like behind the scenes in your life off the stage. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. That's really great. And I know that um, we (laughs) go back to the 80s. Yes. of playing in Flotsam here. And I've often heard you refer to uh, the band being born on your parents' back patio back in the early 80s. Am I correct? Correct. Well, actually, yeah. It was um, probably my sophomore year in high school that I had my first uh, band, the the first shell, which wasn't any of the members that were ended up in Flotsam. And uh, missed putting an ad out for a bass player, and that's when Jason showed up in, like, 1982. And that's kind of where things started growing from. And I always liked the way that you guys did it with, you know, there were several bands that were in that that yard there playing. And it was so cool because you guys didn't care. You let us stand out there. I mean, even in the wintertime, it was cold because Phoenix doesn't get cold, but sometimes, like, in February, it gets a little cold out there. But you guys were so cool. I remember we had like a little fire pit out there in the parking lot. Yep. And all you guys were just jamming away. And you just let us see the natural growth of what was going on with Flotsam and Jetsam. And for that, I was thankful because, you know, here in Phoenix, we didn't have a lot of rock bands that we could look to for that. But you guys were so cool because you allowed us that piece of you. There are still some bands that do that today, but it's not as you guys were so easily approachable. And, I mean, you probably had the toughest job of all, carrying all that drum shit into the gig, right? <laughs> yeah, eventually. Luckily, we had help. But, um, you know, we were just homegrown homegrown dudes. You know, we're always just 
you know, equal with the people around us that we were never coming from a place of above then. Um, Cause the fans are the ones who, you know, without them, you have nothing. It's true. And so we, you know, we followed a lot of um, local bands that were before us, you know, like Icon and Surgical Steel. Um, they, they kind of helped us get our, our sea legs, you might call it where they let us open up for at the, Paper warehouse, Surgical Steel used to have a paper warehouse on McDowell. We played there. We played at uh, um, Metro Center. We played uh, a guitar player. Actually, we had asked him to join Ed Carlson. And five days later, we were playing Metro Center Ice Arena with with, uh, Surgical Steel. We used to play, um, even before we got Eric A.K., uh, Jason would be singing, and we would be playing at my high school at lunch. And we we were called Dreadlocks. Before we even had a singer, we actually played our first gig at the Jar. Oh on my a, God, Franco! You know, six bands on <laughs> Sunday. We got fired because um, Jason had made friends with the uh, sound man who did uh, Double Live Gonzo, and uh, he was the engineer. And at the time, he was the uh, engineer for UFO Live. And so he ran our sound. We were so loud, we knocked eight glasses off the bar, and Franco fired us. <laughs> We got paid nothing. I mean, but back then, you know, most six bands on Sunday, you got 30 bucks. Yeah, Woo. most bands never got paid from the mason jar. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just that history of Phoenix. But, I mean, Jason did all the singing at that time. And then when AK joined, um, yeah, we turned to dogs, you know. That is so cool. Such great musical history here in the Valley. And uh, I know you didn't have the best childhood See, I, I like to go there because this is get real for a reason. Right. It's not always about the music. It's about who's behind the music. And that's why we want to talk about the real and rawness of life. Right. And having the conversations that I've had with you over the past few weeks, I've learned a lot about you that really took me to a place of such appreciation for you as a human being. Because again, like I said in the beginning, we idolize musicians that are up on stage performing because we love the music. We get lost in it. We don't want to deal with our problems. That's why music is such a great escape. But yet we don't look at musicians as human beings. We don't see the tragedies that they've gone through. We don't see the struggles that they've faced unless it's something so big of a story that it has to be splashed out there in the media. And you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have that like we do today. You, if something goes wrong now, it's everywhere. But you went through so much in your younger years and then going into your adult years. Can we go back and touch a little bit on your family life, what it was like for you growing up as a, as a young man here in Phoenix? Sure. Um, you know, I, and I, I want a disclaimer because it, it's funny that, um, you know, we're talking about my childhood, but I, I'm aware of people have had it worse. So I don't claim to have the market or that um, I don't want to sound like I didn't have great things. I did. Um, and a lot, I think a lot of it is um, sometimes people look at it as an outside of what you had and they don't see the internal. And I think that's the part that was the hardest. You know, my parents always had a roof over my head. I always had what I needed. Um but emotionally and um, role model wise, there was nothing that I could 
use that was gonna keep me sane and safe down the road and it, you know and I've come to realize through years of analyzing um, and learning that my parents as we said earlier you know shit runs downhill mm-hmm. and my parents got what they got and they tried to modify it maybe they did maybe they didn't but I got what they you know you can only get what you get you know if you buy a car you know what that car can do and that's all that car can do it's you know you can't buy a Datsun and it's and it turns into a Tesla right you know you have to get a new Tesla Um, so over time I've had to to come try to come to terms with the fact that uh, yes there was things that happened and it wasn't intentional because for a lot of my life I looked at it was why didn't they do better why couldn't they this that and the other and that's being victimized by their shortcomings which they and I learned one time uh, in another realm of therapy was they're struggling with it as much as you are you know I forget the fact that when someone's having a hard time with me, it's not just me that's having a hard time. They're having a hard time probably as well. Right. And I failed to see that. But growing up as a kid, I grew up in uh, like Bernal and Scottsdale Road, and it was all dirt roads back then. I mean, past Shea was all dirt. You know, the Pima was not paved. And uh, I, what I presumed was a normal life. I only had one issue uh, where the bullying started, where there occasionally this one kid would come to the bus stop and and decide that uh, kicking me in the nuts with his cowboy boots was a fun thing for him, and I, I never shared that with anybody. I just took it, and um, the rest of my life from that was good. You know, I have tree forts and underground forts, and I was a latchkey kid. You know, my parents were both working, so I'd just come home and open the door and then I get my bike or whatever and go play and dirt clod fights. I was definitely mischievous. I got in trouble uh, a few times for dirt clod fights because I would hit kids and then they'd say, go home and tell your parents. And I wouldn't. And then they'd come to my door and I'd just start crying because um, I knew I was going to get the paddle because at those days you got paddled and uh, I'd lose my breath after the first hit and there would always be maybe two more. Um, so, I mean, that was the beginning of consequences for me. Um, but there wasn't a lot of communication um, going on. It was, you know, I, I started already just kind of, I was an introvert. So, but I remember listening to music even back then. Uh, I took my brother's Monkeys Greatest Hits, and that was my first record, and I just loved the Monkeys. Um, and then that song Seasons in the Sun came on and I'm in the living room and as a kid and I'm just crying and my mom comes in, she goes, what's wrong? She goes, I'm just like, I don't want you to die. You know, and I'm not even, I'm thinking I'm five or six and I'm already emoting, um, worried about death. Um, wow. So everything, you know, I didn't have any issues at school. It was always fun. You know I mean? Farting, burping, <laughs> making all sorts, you know, I was a little, I was definitely a little, uh, energy ball, I would say, because I remember just constantly just being, everything was a joke and fun. And and then uh, my parents moved to South Scottsdale and uh, the first day of school. 
I think I farted or burped or something. And this kid turns around and he says, I'm bloody in your face after school. That's a little extreme. Well, he was the bully. Ah. And there was more than one. And so from pretty much most of fourth grade, I just ran home because I was like, well, you got to catch me. But you had to be in school. So they would get me between classes and it would be more than one and punching you till your arms hurt and uh, lining us up in lunchtime in front of all the girls and giving the seven or eight of us Snuggies until our underwear ripped or um, the PE teacher. None of the teachers ever did anything. They just allowed it. So what about going home and telling your parents? Did they not say anything about it? Uh, yeah, stick up for yourself. That's it? That's it. I used to beg my brother to come to the school to protect me, and he would never, you know, the first thing I would do before I started running was look down to the end of the road to see is he there. And if he wasn't, I'd just start running. And so that was most of fourth grade. And, um, you know, f- fifth grade, it started to ease up a little bit. I started playing Pop Warner football, and I started kind of splitting the personality because when I put on pads, you better get away from me. Like, I cracked my helmet in Pop Warner because I was, and it may have been just the anger that was building up where I was just like, I got pads on, you can't touch me now. And some of the uh, people were in football, so eventually we became friends. He actually was a part, uh, one of the singers early on before Dreadlocks. Um, but when I play flag football in school, I was terrified. It's like this double life where, I, you know, I was getting accolades in the paper and other coaches would come up and shake my hand and because of what I was doing on the field. And my dad was the coach, um, which I ran a lot of laps because I was a smart ass. So, um, you know, at the same time, I go golfing with my dad and I could feel the tension of his irritation of me being there. So, you know, my dad was adopted and... Um, he, his parents, my grandparents, were professors at U of A. So it wasn't out of love that they did it. It was out of, hey, let's have the token family because we're, you know, it was more of a show kind of thing. So um, there were a moment when I was going through some stuff and I was asked to ask my dad, you know, hey, what happened to your childhood to help me out? And he wouldn't talk about it. He completely shut. So I'm not talking about it. I've already dealt with that, and that's over. You know, but dad, it's for me. And he's like, I can't, I'm not going there because that's how painful it was. I mean, when when my grandma passed away, my dad was golfing. Wow, and that had to affect your life growing up with your father. I know we've talked off air, and if this is too touchy of a subject, we don't have to go there. Right. But I know that you had some issues with your father as well outside of, you know, the normal relationship, you had some things that were going on in your home as well that weren't, they weren't easy to deal with. Yeah, I remember um, I came to the breakfast table and my brother had a black eye. And I was, I don't know, I think I was in fifth, fourth, fifth grade. And I think my sister and my mom were there. Not my sister. No, she had already gotten married at 21. and was out of the house. My brother and sister were eight and 10 years older. They had a different father. So I was my dad's only kid and my brother and him kind of always bumped heads and he had a black eye and I was like, Hey, what happened? And everybody's just kind of, shh, there was nothing. And so my interpretation of what that was, don't argue with dad. So you were pretty much scared of your father growing up. It sounds like. Yes. 
I was well, I was already getting bullied at school, so I was scared of everything because I didn't really have in my mind a place to go. You know, my my parents, I'd come in, my parents would be fighting and I'd start crying because my mom was crying and um, my dad would just have his arms crossed, just surgically tearing it apart. And um, he was sober. My dad got sober when I was six months old. So my brother and sister had to deal with that guy, which I never met. I did meet him when I, when I eventually got sober and he would tell his story about periods of time of dry drunk. And I'd be like, oh, I know when that was now. That's when we were having this issue, you know, where me and him were just button heads and I wasn't sober yet, but I was living in his house and we went six months without talking before I eventually got arrested in my own stuff. But, um, yeah. And he had, he had whipped me into a headlock one time when we were arguing to kind of show like, don't, don't fuck around, man. And I just froze, you know, like, so I kind of grew up and you, you can only be certain emotions and the rest of it. I just stuffed because I didn't feel heard, didn't feel protected. And I was, you know, I didn't feel safe, essentially. I mean, I I wasn't aware of it, but those are the things that today I kind of look back and go, well, that makes sense. Why I didn't tell my parents about, you know, I didn't have people stay at my house. I get that. It's kind of like you don't want to bring them into that negative environment because you don't even feel comfortable living there, but you don't have a choice as a child. You're living there. Right. And I can only imagine the emotions you had tucked away, not being able to not only not deal with being bullied at school, but then to come into an atmosphere where every day, I'm sure you probably had trouble sleeping at night just for the fact that you had to walk on eggshells in your own house. I know I haven't really looked back at that. I'm not not sure if I had trouble or not. Um, Like I said, I was really not aware of how this was affecting me. But I'm sure it materialized itself in other ways. Now that you can look back, I'm sure you see that. Well, yeah, I mean, I... Um, as we talked about earlier, as a kid, I had, you know, paper routes and that. Um, so if we go back to the the bullying stuff, around fifth or sixth grade, seventh grade, I, I started noticing when I'd walk home these dudes in the alleyway that had long hair and they're all smoking cigarettes and they never messed with me. They're always kind of cool. And so I started kind of making friends with the, you know, some of the like, misfit toys <laughs> and, um, uh, getting to know them. And then I started smoking. And so I had a paper route and I used to, you know, basically self-supporting through my own contributions. If you want to go seven tradition in the steps, um, you know, I had an allowance, but that was like a dollar 35 a week, which is, you know, I mean, back then that was, that was a lot of money though. Yeah. If you think about it. So I had a paper route. I used to work for the Phoenix Gazette, the Arizona Republic, Scottsdale progress, you know, and, um, that's how I would get money to buy singles. Like I would listen to music and buy the 45s or I'd buy full albums before I got my drums. Um, actually that's how I found my drums. I was on a paper route and, um, this guy I used to go to school with his brother played drums and I would, I delivered to their house. So I would stop and sit outside his house and listen to him playing drums. And, and one day they were like, Hey, you want to come in and and check it out. And so they let me come in and I'd watch him play. And I was just like, wow, that's really cool. And I could, um, at some point I asked my parents, you know, can, can I get, he was selling his drums and he told me, and I told my parents, you know, Hey man, he's, I want these for Christmas. 
And uh, lo and behold, at 11 years old, I got them. That is where I started to find an escape of everything that was going on. But I'm kind of going all over the place. That's okay. But during the paper routes, um, it wasn't actually the paper routes. I also made money from um, garbage picking. So I used to uh, also used to pry those Firebird things off the side of people's cars. I got caught doing that and stealing the little steely caps off the tires. I got. I remember I was doing that and I looked up and this guy's right behind me and I'm like, oh crap. Quite the entrepreneur. Yeah, I was like I said, I was a misfit kid. I didn't get caught on the small stuff. Just the. Um, so anyway, garbage picking. I ran. I uh, I would start to find swank hustler playboy. Um, gay magazines and uh, you know of course I would stash those and go find my friends and we'd all look at them and go wow look at that and I wonder if mine's going to be like that and you know all these different scenarios and and that uh, you know as a 12 13 year old you start to kind of put that to use with other things and um, it's natural it's natural to a point but that is when it's it also was a distortion because what was going on in my life? That was the only pleasurable thing that I had to go to. So it got distorted at that point where it, it was an object. I was objectifying. It, I didn't have any attachment to a relationship. It was just that makes me feel better. So I'm going to do that, you know, and um, that it eventually, you know, I mean, I ended up in a rock band, blah, blah, blah. But so, I mean, those were, uh, you know, I started to smoke cigarettes. I started to f- smoke weed at 13. I it was the first time I got high after eighth grade. And, you know, I started to, you know, once I found that, I was like, oh, I found it. You know, my, I wasn't so afraid anymore. I wasn't so um, inhibited and I could speak and girls started to talk to me and I could talk to them and you know, I started to get wings, you know, outside of that scared kid. It was a it was kind of a a shell of bravery, you might call it, where um, I didn't have to be afraid of who I was because all those other people that are doing that didn't treat me the way they did at school, you know. And as I got in sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I started to actually start having female relationships. It was funny the first time. uh some girl had asked me out and I went home and asked my mom and she said no. So I told her I couldn't go out with her. <laughs> I couldn't go steady. So Well, that takes you back, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny. Um, if I went back to before we moved, I had a girlfriend and I actually reached out to her, I don't know, a decade ago, maybe more, but... I used to have a tree fort and she would come over and I would, we'd kiss and I would say, Hey, if you show me yours, I'll show you mine. And she would get mad and leave. And that was like in before fourth grade. So I was already kind of twisted, I guess. And, um, one day I found her, I think on Facebook and I just sent her this, I said, see if you can remember who this is. And I said, let me show you yours. If you show me mine, she went, Oh my God. You know, she lives in Germany and she works at Microsoft, but it was, it was one of those things where I was kind of doubting if it was real. And then she confirmed, yeah, that did actually happen. So I was like, wow. Cause you know, you start looking at your past going, when did these things start to create? When did they happen? 
Um, there was a, there's only one blank spot that I remember that I can't remember actually is we, when I was a kid, our house caught on fire and oh, I was wow. at the babysitters and, or wherever I was. And my, my family shows up and they're all, they smell like smoke. There's some of them have black on them. And I didn't really know what happened, but we did go back and I remember seeing the house. And then next thing you know, I'm in paradise Valley and I don't remember the time from that moment. So we got to the new house. We stayed at Roadway Inn right across from Farrell's on Indian School. I remember going there once. But there's this huge, and I don't know if there's trauma in there. I don't know what happened. Very well could be because the brain always shuts itself off to protect us. Yeah, so I, I sense something happened there because that's, you know, I don't know what it was. And I, maybe I'll never know. But, so I mean, that's kind of how things went. I started, you know, watching my brother and sister. Uh, I would watch my parents talk about my brother and sister, the negative. And then I would kind of, it became an obstacle course of how can I move around so I don't get that from them? How can I be a better child? How can I? That's a lot to take on though, when you're a child. I wasn't really aware of it until I got older. And I started to notice that I was even when I got to a certain point, I noticed that it was almost like a power feeling. Like, I still have my dad. You don't. Mm. You know, and unconsciously, there was this thing in me that kind of got off on that idea that, you know, I'm better than you. Although deep down inside, you didn't feel that way. No. No, no that's the inferiority thing of... Um, I really loved my brother and my sister and they were there since I was born. Um, so it, you know, that's when you start having guilt feelings about why do I have this? Where's this coming from? Blah, 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 blah. You know, so, and I think it's staging wise when you think about life, you know, I'm coming up, I'm on my 56th year on the, you know, 56th Super Bowl. I was born on the same year as the Super Bowl. Um, it seems like there's stages or decades of, and you start to see the different things that happen in those decades. And then now as I'm having kids that are getting older and I'm seeing them go through those stages, I'm like, Oh, okay. I remember that. I remember this. Some of these, you know, uh, you know, your first 20 years, you're just trying to figure out, stay alive, I guess, more mm -hmm. or less and running into all your limits. And then from 20 to 30, you're, you're, uh, I was in that, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing here? And then 30 through 40, you're kind of trying to get your career. And then 40 through 50, it's like, well, what happened to my childhood? Why am I acting this way? Why are my parents, why am I parenting this way? Why do I feel this way? What's going on with me? Blah. You know, it starts to go introvert. And then I think from where I'm at now, it's starting to look at what's left. What am I going to do now? Well, that's, with, with what I have. That's what you're doing. You're working on that now. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So let's take that little trip back because I know we've touched on this and we talked about it. Um, I believe it was 1984 that you got yourself into some big oh, trouble. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that. Yeah. You got yourself into <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's always those stories of the things that we do when we're younger that kind of, uh, it kind of changed your direction a little bit as a musician as well. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it actually started before that. Like I said, I started getting high when I was 13. But um, And, of course, there was a lot of other things along the way. But around, uh, I graduated high school, and the girl I was seeing at the time, her ex-boyfriend was a Coke dealer. Ooh. And uh, we had become friends because I was in a band, and, you know, everybody wanted to be your friend. And so he would turn me on 
for free. It's like, come on over, we'll do some lines. And so I was starting to kind of get into it. And lo and behold, at 17, my great aunt had sent me 10 grand. And I'd only met her a couple times. She's the one that actually got my dad adopted. She was the one that, that, that helped him become a Smith, I guess. And uh, he knew it was coming. I had no idea. So our wall, I was already, you know, I uh, was pretty involved in the band. And I was out of high school. I wasn't going to college yet. And um, I saw this check, and I'm bouncing off the walls. And he goes, well, you're going to pay for the truck that you wrecked because I drove his truck one night, smashed it. He paid for my second drum set, which was two grand. And, you know, so me and him went to war. I'm like, well, this check has my name on it. He goes, well, then you can go live on your own if that's the way you want to be. And I was only 17. So I said, okay. And we stopped talking because he only let me buy a few things. And that pissed me off because it was my money and my, 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 you know, 17 year old mm -hmm. with a self-centered mind. Mm -hmm. And a big that, check. And a big check. And uh, so the next year, within the same week, I got another one. Now I'm 18. I'm going to go into the cocaine business with my partner to make money for the band. What a great idea. We're going to make a whole bunch of money. I'm going to make sure everybody, you know, so I bought a PA, I bought the guitar player some stuff. I bought me some stuff. I would buy, like I got new rims for my truck. I would buy stuff and just hide it when I got home, hoping my dad wouldn't see it. And um, I was the silent guy that would just invest and, you know, grab some Coke whenever I wanted it. And, um, you know, the relationship I was in, um, eventually I was doing Coke all day long. And so when she would show up, I'd already be well on my way. And I wasn't talking anymore because I was just so high. I was distorted so bad. I used to call it four-way suicide because I would smoke, drink, do Coke and, and uh, weed. I still think it was funny. And I OD'd um, one time. I did about 20, about two grams in 20 minutes. And I threw up in my, all I could feel was my heart, you know, and I'm, and my girlfriend was with me at the time and uh, we're at my buddy's apartment. I'm like, I'm not going home. I'm not going to sleep because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to die. So she stayed up with me and then eventually I did fall asleep. And I, of course, you know, I did all the, the typical addiction prayers you know i'm never going to do this again god if you get me out of this and you know i got up in the morning picked all the scabs out of my nose and i was on my way again just right back on the but it had changed um, something neurologically had changed where i now became sleepy when i did cocaine oh wow so any kind of stimulant would put me to sleep which was different because that's the opposite so um that's why today I can, you know, drink monsters and this and that. And it doesn't make me, I can go to sleep. You know, I could take acid, go to sleep. Um, just things that normally people, but anyway. So uh, I was going to Scottsdale Community College trying to, you know, please dad with, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree. And I started taking all these music classes, but I was also shooting my mouth off about how great my cocaine was. And an undercover, or a cadet, I don't know which it was, said, hey, my buddy needs some cocaine. Can we get some from you? I did two drug deals. My partner was doing hundreds. I went to prison. He did not. <laughs> so to me, that, that was God saving my life. Because I'd already 
had an overdose and I was only 18. Um, so I'm just gotten into a great argument with my dad. Open the door and there's two marshals indicting me from the state of grand and jury for sales of narcotics. Damn. And I'm like, can you read that again, please? And, you know, they read it again, and I shut the door, and my dad goes, what's this about? It's obviously not about pot. And I said, Dad, if I go to prison more than a year, you'll never see me alive because I'll just take my life. You know, I'd never been in trouble with the law before ever in my life. And uh, even after that, I still got high a couple more times. But um, I remember standing in front of the judge. Luckily, my mom knew she worked for the court, so she knew the judge and was— I had a class two felony, which was seven to 14 years for a gram of cocaine. Um, and, you know, when I came out and it, he's, he's, you know, I said, you know, oh, my great aunt, you know, inherit, I inherited money and it's not like I'm going to get it. And he goes, imagine how hard she worked for that money. Ouch. And he said, well, the first thing he says, you're right up there with the big time, second degree murder. And I just, tears are starting to come down my eyes because I'm like, I'm dead. I'm just like, my life is over. And luckily, I got, you know, what people would say is nothing, but to me, who'd never been in trouble, 30 days and four years probation, I didn't know where I was going. But, you know, I'm going to prison. And uh, I went to Maximum, which is Alhambra, which is downtown at 20, that's the holding cell for the state. So I was in there with everything from murderers, rapists. It didn't matter. That was the holding, you know. And then when I got in there, they told me, don't tell anybody what you got because they're going to, they're going to target you because you're not a serious, you know, they're going to make it worse for you if you tell them. So I had to make up this whole other story. And anyway, I got through that and started, uh, one of my probation things was drink, but not to success. I was like, ha, how do you define that? Mm-hmm. You know, so I had just gone to prison. I just got sentenced. And the first thing my brain says is, well, how are you going to define not? I was like, ooh, you're not getting it, are you? You know, so I got out. Of course, got a hotel because I hadn't seen my girlfriend in 30 days. Had to fix that problem and had a party. Mm. And for the next four or five days, I drank and drank and drank. But I remembered that something in the meeting said, your disease will switch. And I went, ding. And I started getting sober on like March 7th, 1985. And this was before the band even took off. Well, I think Metal Shock was done. No, because when I got out, see, when I was in jail, our other guitar player left and we we took on Mike Gilbert, uh, who was in a band called The Kids. And he was 17. Um, I was 19. And so when I got out, he had already, they had already started writing. Um, I think I Live You Die was one of the first songs. Uh, we had already had Hammerhead from The Dogs. Um, the Beast From Within was from Ed's old band Exodus, which we took on as The Dogs. And then uh, Evil Chic was written uh, as Flotsam at that time. So the band had changed the name before I went to prison to Flotsam and Jetsam. And so when I came out, um, Gloria Bujanowski, I can't remember exactly how you say her name, but she's married to Max Cavalera now. She owned a club called The Bootlegger, and we used to play there all the time, and and, uh, we recorded our live demo uh, for Metal Blade, and we did a live video there as well. But um, she had a band, uh, Battle of the Bands, and the band that won broke up, so she gave us the time. 
which we made Metal Shock, our four-song demo, which eventually got us signed. So, you know, I was sober through all that stuff. And that's what surprises me. I mean, you came out of prison. You guys are on the rise as a band. And yet you go on tour. And we all know the stories. We, well, we, I got out of prison. We still hadn't been signed yet. Okay, but you still were with the band. Mm-hmm. And things were starting to go places with you guys. You were playing around the valley and doing things. But for you to come out and decide to take on the sober lifestyle, that is like the furthest thing you would think you could survive with when you're with other musicians who are obviously getting drunk, getting stoned, or doing other things. And we know in the height of the 80s, cocaine was the drug of choice. Yeah, Mark Mayfield and I and Mark in the Dark. Oh, yeah, we had some parties. Those are good buddies of mine. Well, mm-hmm. we just lost yeah, well, Mark in the yeah, Dark. Yeah. yeah. But that used to have, we used to do that in the parking lot at Clancy's. Oh, my God. Wow. On, uh, I think it was Metal Mondays. Something like that, you know? Wow. Yeah, back in the day, I used to party with those guys. Um, but you're, you're, I guess the thing that to remember is I was the scared kid who, once I went to prison, I'm not going back. Right. Scared straight. You know, I was the kid who was avoiding all the trouble that my brother and sister did, and I just successfully went further. So I had all these ideals or things in my brain that said you were a bad kid we're not going to do that again because i had learned through the bullying that the only way to be loved is to be perfect because when i was you know when i noticed in the in the in those days is the kids that were popular were beautiful you know they all looked good they were good at sports they got good grades everybody liked them so in order for me to be loved i had to be all those things. I couldn't have errors. I couldn't be seen, um, you know, because I learned back then I had to be small. Don't see me. Don't look at me. Don't pay attention to me because it's the only way I'm going to make it through the day. To be invisible. But all those people had to be seen. And when they were seen, they didn't make mistakes. They weren't imperfect. You know, they used to call them, the girls used to call me scraper face at school because I (sighs) I had zits on my forehead and I would pick them and you know, so the girls made fun of me, the boys made fun of me. I didn't have a place. And so everything about being loved had to be with, deal with perfectionism. Could, there was no, you don't make mistakes, you don't get noticed in the wrong ways, you don't, you know, you had to walk the line. You know? Right. Um, and also part of it was I learned that when, uh, my mom's boyfriend's, I, it almost became like a performance for her. Like I always had to be a certain way when she was with them to impress them. You know, even her husband today, she, she doesn't do it anymore, but she used to always call ahead and say, Hey, it's Paul's birthday. This is coming up week. Or it's, you know, she would always try to encourage me to call them or talk to them or be something that I didn't really want to be. You know, I like him today, but you know, as a kid, it was not, I wasn't allowed to be me because it was never enough. Right. There was always something that would cause me pain or trouble because I wasn't doing something correctly. So I learned, and that's why you said, you know, it's amazing that you could be in the rock band. Well, I didn't want to go back to prison because I knew, you know, I got lucky. And the judge said, if you ever come back to me again, you will serve your time. And I didn't forget that, you know. But when I got out, Jason was really a key factor in 
how we progress because he had, um, I don't know where he learned it from or whatever, but he's the one that came up with, uh, we made a demo. We kind of started our first fan um, funded because we made our own cassettes. He would duplicate them. We'd go to Zia Records and they would allow us to sell them there. And that would fund sending them to fanzines around the world to sending them to labels, to making promo packs, to all these things to get our name out there was because Jason came up with the idea of how, and I don't know how he did it, but he just did it. And we started kind of making this little machine. Uh, Ed lived with them at the time. So Ed and um, my ex-brother-in-law, all those guys would, would be working to help get that machine going while I was out trying to be sober, you know. Um, so for, you know, until he left, I was involved, but I wasn't hands-on as he was, you know. So he gets the, all that credit. I mean, Mike Gilbert and him wrote the music, and Jason wrote all the lyrics. But, you know, um, the engineering behind how we got found and how we progressed, you know, started with him. But tour life couldn't have been easy for you because we all know how that goes on tour. I mean, you and I have had talks about this that mm-hmm. – uh, you were the only sober one in the band, and these guys were doing other things on tour that, um, you know, you you were there watching this happen. Yeah, well, I mean, Mike Gilbert was sober when I first joined the band. He wasn't a drinker and a partier. He was, you know, so me and him always kind of hung tight. We were called the fun police at one point <laughs> because you had half the band that was doing what they do, and the rest, and me and him were um, trying to do the business of sorts, and manage things and Mr. Serious, you know, we were very serious about what we were doing. And, um, but the first time I went to Europe, um, we toured with Megadeth on the P-Cells tour. And, um, of course I'm 21, I'm on TWA flying to Heathrow to play a sold out Hammersmith Odeon, which was the place to play if you were in a metal band in Europe and for us anyway. And Megadeth had never played in Europe. So it was both of us at our first show there. We had just played a few shows on on the East Coast, which our first American tour, because we only did spot shows up until No Place, or Doomsday came out. So 1987, we're flying to Europe, and uh, our equipment got stuck in, in customs. We were all sick because we had indulged in the New York sidewalk hot dogs, oh. and we had gotten the flu basically... Uh, because we had come across new um, bacteria that we hadn't had, you know, being in another part of the country, and now we're gone, you know. So I think your body has to get adjusted to the the water and the food, and so all of us had kind of had a bug going on. So our equipment shows up 40 minutes late. We're being recorded by the BBC, and the show's held back 45 minutes. They put our gear up. The guitar players just go, eh, and the curtain goes up. Damn. So we didn't have any sound check. Um, other than just a quick, hey, is everything set up? Good, go. And it was recorded at the BBC. Uh, but we were successful. I mean, you can still find some of it out there on YouTube. Or, yeah, YouTube has some of that recording out there. Um, and then we got to Amsterdam, which I had never been to Amsterdam. Didn't know much about Amsterdam. But, you know, hookers were legal. Heroin was legal. Weed was legal. I wake up and the bus is empty. Where is everybody? Well, at the time, you know, Megadeth, it's well known that they were on heroin. 
which I was still clueless to heroin, believe it or not. I had no idea. And they were all gone getting, you know, hookers and heroin. And um, I went to the to the hash bar and hung out with them. I didn't smoke anything, but I just was kind of there seeing everything. Um, still had no real clue what was going on. but So they had bought 11 grams of hash on the bus. We were sharing a bus with Megadeth. We're going to Germany. And the bus driver's like, hey, you can't have that when we get across the border because we're going to get checked. So these guys are smoking it, eating it. All this stuff. I actually have a picture of a couple of those Daves hitting the pipe. Um, we get to the border and they don't check. Oh, man. I start laughing my ass off because I'm just like, you guys just wasted all that hash for nothing. I'm sober, so I'm laughing. I'm just like, man, that's a bummer. <laughs> kind of the funny thing to be the sober one watching all this go on well, I, I yeah for a few tours i i actually would roll their joints i mean i was testing my own you know my my early sobriety actually went out in 88 um uh, after four years because i didn't really take it seriously as i should have you know i did a, a some people call it well no it's a four-step and my sponsor said it wasn't good enough and i said well then i guess i need I'm not, I don't need a sponsor. So I was going to one meeting a week and um, was not doing step work. And, you know, my addiction was going towards my pants now. And even sober, I was not, I had another addiction that I was not yet aware of. Sex addiction? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was putting situations in my life that um, were eventually get me in trouble. And um, I was in a relationship at that time. With my son's mama, you know, I wasn't being a faithful man, you know, and I still had this idea that I loved her, which I did, but I didn't have, it was very distorted. And, uh, you know, um, just the ideas behind that and some of the thinking and the the uh, the reasoning that I would use and the, the idea of, well, that was just a dream. It wasn't real. I could just erase it. And you can erase it when it affects other people. Right. Yeah. Well, I never gave her the opportunity. I never said, hey, I'm going to step out for a minute. Go ahead and step out. You know, I wasn't I, I wasn't even aware that that was, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I had some hard lessons. Eventually, you know, she read my four step and, and found some stuff. And she married me six months later, Oof. which is I was kind of like, you are? Um, and we had a son, which I, I love him to death. He's 30 now, but, um, a year and a half later for her, her pain started coming back around all that. And we were in the middle of our fourth record our our second record on MCA. And she was trying to, she was asking me to work part time. And I'm like, how can we do that? We can't afford that. And, more or less that they were trying to have me leave the band. And I was like, I can't, I'm on him. I'm going, you know, we just did our first MTV video. We did. So I chose the band over her and I left my son at 18 months. Um, you know, which again, um, I didn't see at that time that I was going to overcome what I had done. So I made the decision to let go, which was very painful. I mean, from, from that day on, you know, that's when suicide started becoming a daily option for me because the pain was so great of not only that it was gone, but that I had caused it 
and that I was going to lose the opportunity to live with my son, which was very important to me. Um, so I was only going to have him every other weekend at this point. And um, I don't know if it was maybe reliving my own pain from my parents' divorce. And, un, you know, I, I, I did come to my parents at that time and, and say, hey, I understand. I get it now. This isn't an easy decision. You didn't just do this flippantly because, you know, it wasn't that you weren't thinking of me. It's what I thought. You know, they don't care about me. That's why they're not staying or, you know, whatever. I, I got it. I understood what divorce meant and how painful that was and what a choice that was for a parent to have to make. So there was some healing in there about that with them. So that was, you know, there is always something beautiful underneath the pain that you just have to look for it. You know, now my son and me have a great relationship, you know, um, because I realized that I did the same. Uh, I did something that um, my parents didn't do. My mom was always had some kind of cheap shot eventually towards my dad. And I even asked her at some point, can you not do that, please? And she said, well, I'll say whatever I want to say. And that's when I started limiting what I shared with my mom, because if you're not going to honor my wish, then I'm not going to share with you my heart. And that's one thing I never truly understand why when parents separate and they break up, you're not supposed to talk bad about the other to the kids because that eventually it's going to alienate yourself from your own children because they're going to realize that, that that's the issues you have with their parent that has nothing to do with them. Even at the time when the divorce goes through, the kids are always blaming themselves because they don't understand it. I did something wrong. That's why my parents are splitting up. And then you have a parent, one or the other, who is saying bad things about the other parent. and In front of other people. Exactly. And your children always hear that. And somewhere down the road, when they have that relationship with their parent, the other parent that's been talked about badly, and they see that that's not true, then they harbor that that thing against their other parent that couldn't stop talking badly. And that's... You know, I when I went through that divorce myself, I never brought up my ex-husband to my son. He wasn't really there for my son, but I would never talk bad because I didn't want to be the bad guy. And I didn't want to have my son looking at me going, you know, you said all these bad things about my father and, and I hate you for that. It's like when you're old enough, you can ask the questions that need to be answered. But for now, you need to be a kid and you need to understand that this is just what life is. Yeah, I mean, that's what I tell, that's what I realized when I was at that point is I can talk to her on the phone and tell her my opinion, but when I hang up the phone, she's going to do what she wants anyway. So the only thing I can do is just love him the best I could be when I'm with him, which, you know, we talked about earlier off air about those times when I'd be with my dad and I'd be going golfing with him because I think my mom may have said, hey, can you take him? And that feeling of not want him not wanting me to be there, and it was more of an irritation. I transferred some of that to my kids because I would feel that way, like, oh man, I gotta do this. It wasn't that I get to do this; it was like I gotta do this, you know. And that was something that I got from my dad, or at least I felt that I got from my dad before my dad and me actually started healing. When I got sober, you know, start. I didn't hear my dad say he loved me until I was 28. Wow. He might have said it, 
But you didn't hear it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't hear it. You know, it took that long for me to get it. And I'm kind of slow sometimes. But so I understood that, you know, I never talked about his mom negatively. And, you know, I don't know if she did with me or not, but I believe she didn't because we understood that we wanted our, our, our child to love the other parent, regardless of what happened with us. So she's done a great job, you know, and I've told her before, she's done a great job raising him, you know, and I don't take a lot of credit for that. I mean, he looks up to me, you know, I remember there was this time, um, I was in the car and I had left Flotsam and, uh, you know, I hadn't played drums in a while and I was considering selling my kit and I'm on the phone with somebody. I'm like, just talking. And I got my son in the car, he's in the driver's seat, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to try to sell my drums. You know, I don't really play them that much, and um, I'm kind of black and white when it comes to playing. I'm either all in or I'm all out. And um, I get off the phone, and he's crying. I'm like, what's going on, dude? What's up? He's like, I thought that those drums were mine, Dad. I was like, oh, buddy, they're our ears, you know? And I was like, okay, we're not selling them, you know? He's still, I still have them. You know, because he wanted them, and that was important to him. And I had no idea. I said, hey, I never expected you to, to be a drummer. You know, he already had this pre-expectation that he had to become something. Because was, he's the drummer's son. Right. Yeah. And I was like, hey, buddy, I just want you to be happy with who you are. You don't have to do this. And, you know, but, you know. So I, I remember that time um, where he was pretty attached to that idea that, you know, I was expecting him to be something. I never put that on him. You know, I've always, I just want my kids to be happy. Um, I want them to do the best that they can. You know, that's my goal is don't just give up, you know. Um, but like I said, we talked earlier, you know, God doesn't have grandchildren. And I have to remember that I was taken care of regardless of whether I believed it or not. The path was already laid and the path was cleared for the path that I'm supposed to have, whether it's life or death, the path is the path and it's, it's going to go the way it goes. And, um, you know, so just be supportive and loving. And I think I learned some of that from my dad as, as he, as we started to build our relationship and I started to see how he, cause when I went to prison, he actually went to, uh, some, some kind of a treatment or therapy because he didn't under, he didn't realize where I was at. And I think he figured out that, that he was so disconnected that he needed to look at something. So what I was told, he didn't tell me, but I think my stepmom told me that, you know, he actually went into some form of treatment for codependency because he, you know, when I went to prison, he was, you know, this is why I have a hard time talking about a rough life. Um, I live with my dad. He paid my car insurance. He paid my car gas bill. He paid my car payment. Well, I treated him like total shit as a 17-year-old, not doing my chores, arguing with him all the time, just being a dick. And he thought I was just smoking pot. But he didn't know about the trauma that was below the surface within you as well. No. But, you know, it's hard to say that I had a rough life when you when you see that. And you go, oh, well, your life was rough, right? You know, I wasn't homeless. I didn't have all that. But the the thing that was eating away from me, eating, eating me up inside, which I still hadn't found yet, was the emotional um, and spiritual hole that was in me um, from early on. Um, 
So it makes it hard sometimes to talk about because I know plenty of people that have had it way worse than me and, you know. Yeah, but our trauma is our trauma and that belongs to us. And even though we come in contact with others that had it worse, it still was very difficult going through that trauma. And you can't take that away from the experience. That is what makes you who you are as you become an adult and formulate your life in the future, you continue to make mistakes until you face the trauma. And that is so difficult because, you know, as you've said, you, you didn't have a big support system at first when you were going through a lot of that and you couldn't really talk about it. And then we just tuck it down deep and move on with our life. And we don't realize why we're making these mistakes and having these issues in our life, making selfish choices and hurting others around us not really seeing the big picture until somewhere down the road. And we realize the choices we've made and what those do to other people. And it's difficult. I mean, even being, we talked about this, being a creative, you guys were at the big, you were at that big level and it's difficult. And I've seen so many musicians who drop out and do the family thing, then try to go back and do it afterwards. But then again, I've seen so many that try to take the family life with them and it's, it gets destructive because the family pays the price for the fame that the musicians have to go live. So, I mean, I know you dropped out of the band and then you rejoined the band and then you dropped out again in 2014 because you had a lot of shit that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when we talked about at some point, you know, I've been wanting to write, eventually write a book and I was talking to another person about it who's who's close to the band the not in the band and she she is familiar with the history of the band but um about the the how drums and music saved my life in the beginning as a kid going through all that stuff you know i went to codependency school of captain and Tennille, barry manilow records and tv as how relationships are supposed to be you know, and that's all just sick, codependent, you know, can't live without you, <laughs> you know, all those themes. And, you know, my parent, my family was breaking up. So my fantasy, I started creating a fantasy world of what love was and how you're supposed to do it. And then my peers, you know, I'd watch my peers, the ones that are successful. I learned a lot of my life was watching it and, and adapting it wasn't because someone sat down and said, this is the way it is. Or I didn't read a book. It was, what am I seeing and how do you do that? Okay, that's what that looks like, so I'm going to do this. So there was never really a healthy love perspective to begin with. Um, I forgot where we were going. but Just talking about your life in general because you've – you dropped out of the band and oh, then yeah, yeah. rejoined the band and dropped out again when you had a lot of family stuff happen. So yeah, yeah. it's just, I want people to understand the things that happened to you personally and how you're dealing with that, how you're changing your life for the better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, dude, you had a lot of shit happen that so many people are not aware of. Even I was not aware of that history. Mm-hmm. And I know you've done a few interviews talking about it over the past few years, but... That's stuff that we don't hear a lot about. We hear about the brands coming and going, breaking up, somebody leaving the band, something happening. But you had so much shit just pummel you that 
you finally decided that, you know, like you said, the first time you chose the band over the family. Yeah. And then when I came, I left the band in 97 because we had dropped off MCA, went back to M to metal blade. And to me, that was the wrong direction. And I'm divorced. I'm living with my dad in a condo. I'm driving a car that he gave me because one of the people he sponsored committed suicide. Mm. So I'm in a suicide car. I'm in debt. I only came with the boxes that I have. And I'm like, okay, we're on our fifth record. This doesn't look like it's working. And so maybe I can go to school now and start building a life. And that was when I was 30. So um, I did start to develop an IT career. My second marriage, the person was a corporate person, and she worked at Microwage, and I got my first computer, and I started playing with that. Hey, can I do this? Can I... You know, so I developed a IT career, and um, luckily, because I knew, you know, uh, I felt like that it was a dead end at that point because alternative music was coming in, metal was kind of pushed to the side. We had dropped a label. I'm like, this isn't going the direction, and the band was kind of in a rough spot where things were just getting out of control as far as. Um, you know, our management and the label dropped us and some of the people we had working with us at the time, it was just, it didn't look like it was anything that was going to, the route I should take. And so I walked away and um, got my career, got another marriage and uh, that marriage eventually ended. Um, we were trying to, she was sober, I was sober and we saw my parents as a role model, but we both were so not the right people for each other we tried to force a relationship to be what it wasn't and we eventually just kind of tore each other to shreds but so i'm 12 years sober and uh two years prior to our separation i felt her pulling away and i would ask is it what's going on oh nothing nothing but she started traveling for work you know and i started looking at when i travel for work i called my ex-wife every day even when we weren't married and you're not calling me and so my codependency started kicking in and i started you know like what are you doing what's going on it feels like you're cheating and you know she would never own it i don't know if she ever did but she came home after two years and said i'm done i want a divorce and uh left me with a house she went to north carolina and uh but during that time i had one off completely broken all my boundaries and read her journals left left notes in the journals hacked into her computer her yahoo account tried to get a hold of people i mean i went off the deep end you know i'm 12 years sober i'm doing the program but i had not touched Al-Anon. one day i came home from work the house was empty and i did this loop in the living room pulled a chair up took my belt off, put it over the log, put it around my neck and stepped off. And it wasn't like something I had predetermined. I just came in and said, fuck it, I'm done. And I held on until pretty much I was getting ready to faint. Everything went black and I couldn't feel anything and I let go. And I was like, what it told me was, I can do this. It doesn't hurt. My sister committed suicide in 2004 um, because she, I mean, that's a whole other story we don't need to get into, but I mean, her, her life in our family was pretty rough um, because her and my brother came from a different dad. And at one point she went 
I'll just briefly touch it. She went back. She had made contact with him to go visit him, and my mom jumped in the middle of that one mm. and just destroyed it for her. They didn't even ask my brother, which pissed me off. So he was completely cut out of that idea. Um, why my mom went, I still don't know. But anyway, she ended up dying, and, and I resented her because she did it first. Wow. And, you know, occasionally I would tell my now wife because it started to become really dark for me. Like, I think my sister's trying to pull me back in because this weight and darkness was so heavy. Like, it was, it was a struggle to get through some days sometimes because the darkness was just weighing on me. Like, I'm like, I do not want to be here. And, you know, that's when we talked about it earlier. I have a son. You know, even though, and I think when, when my sister committed suicide and the first thing I went, you know, uh, we knew it was going to happen. Um, and I looked over at my now wife and I said, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I've never had anybody die this close to me. And so I just got dressed and I went to help my mom. She just lost her daughter, you know. Um, 2008, it's all leading up to you know, the 2014 stuff. But anyway, in my relationship with my, my now wife, we've, we've went through a lot of stuff. Um, that was one of the first things I went through with her. 2008, um, my, actually it was 2007, right after Christmas, my dad, or no, it was 2008, right? Literally the week after Christmas, my dad didn't come down for Christmas. And that was kind of weird. They lived in Prescott and he sent an email saying I have stage four cancer and I'm not going to treat it. Oh, wow. Now from the time I got divorced, I was living with my dad and, and, um, we eventually were living with my stepsister and he had sleep apnea, which I didn't know anything about yet. And he would stop breathing and I would freak out. I mean, that's how close we got where I would be outside his room like, Dad, are you alive? Like I was terrified that this guy was going to die on me because I'd grown to love him so much. After all, you know, living together, we go to dinner together, we were going to meetings together, we were doing, you know, he was my go-to, he was my everything. And uh, so that was the, a huge fear for me to lose my dad. And I get that email. I'm like, really god it could have taken so many other people and you take this one and so being sober gave me the ability to show up you know so i went up to prescott and i started help you know we got there in the first day or so i could tell you know um he was already having effects and he wasn't even catching on and my stepmom was like what I just said, you know, he doesn't want treatment, so what can I do for you? And I just tried to show up for her and to help her walk through because he was dead in five weeks. Wow. And uh, so that was 2008. I also lost my grandma, also lost our house, had to put down my cat by myself. I'd never put an animal down, and the day we had to move, I had to get rid of the cat. And so, you know, there was all these just huge amounts of stuff happening my daughter was having issues with staying sober she was dealing with her trauma that happened from her father 
I mean, the, there was so much stuff going on in 2008, 2009, and we finally moved. And um, I get a call. Uh, I was working for the county, and um, I decided that uh, I got this job in, a, uh, in my IT job, and I'm working for Maricopa County Integrated Health. And um, I took on a job that was probably more than I should have taken but I wouldn't own it. Um, but in the middle of that, I decided that, Hey, why not stop taking my antidepressants? I told, didn't tell my wife, didn't tell anybody just stopped because I didn't like not feeling. Right. And, uh, that was the first job I got fired from because I literally got paralyzed to the point where I'd be in my office, just crying in total chaos, not knowing what's going on. So I didn't have a job. And, um, I got a job with one of the guys who was sober, um, a realtor, and I was just making Craigslist ads. And if I made one mistake, I would go into complete panic. Like, I'm just making Craigslist ads. Like, I told my wife, I think I'm going to have to go into disability because I can't even do simple things without losing my mind. So, I mean, mm. there's a lot going on. So, anyway, in 2011 or 2010 or 2011, I get a call from AK, and AK's like, hey, man. Um, we're going to do a new record. Do you want to rejoin the band? And I'm like, sure. You know, I started doing, uh, I was just doing whatever I could to make money. And uh, so we ended up, you know, making that record. Um, uh, I think the first one we did was, uh, it was called Ugly Noise, um, which that gets into some Jason stuff. Um, which we can go into that later, but... Um, Anyway, in my time in the band, we made that record. We made another record, and um, it started out really fun and, you know, kind of getting the band back on track and getting things going. And, you know, I'm going back to Europe. I'm doing, you know, we did 40 shows in 2014, and everything felt great. And we had brought back a guy, Michael Spencer, who uh, was on our second. Uh, he was the first choice after Jason left, and then we fired him before we actually recorded because of – um, you know, we just weren't all a healthy bunch of people. So that's all I can put it is we just made choices based on ego and, and impatience, I guess. I can't really speak for them, but I noticed, you know, when I look back on it, it was, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no manager and, you know, um, everybody was just trying to do what we could because Jason had left and it's, uh, so anyway, he rejoins the band. He's a reborn Christian. And so I'm kind of looking at that. You know, I've been sober. I've had a higher power. I've done a lot of spiritual seeking. And and so I kind of, a, you know, we met before we joined the band, and we had these great conversations. I was like, man, why didn't I? How come I haven't kept in touch with this guy? Because he's really got it going. You know, he's spiritual, and he's doing all these things for his church, and he plays for his church. And I bring him back, and, you know, I get him back into the band, and, and what I've done before is attach myself to that. You're going to help me get through this because you're going to be my spiritual anchor. It still was not a God. It was still attaching to a human power. So anyway, we're on the road in 2014, and I start to see cracks. Um, what happens and what people most, most, for me and what most people don't know is it's a family on the road. And if your dynamics are broken, it's always going to get messy. And so 
usually in every case you go on the road the first three weeks are exciting everybody's amped we're doing our thing we're making we're getting better as a band and then you get into the to the groove where you know you don't really need to worry about much because the machine is rolling and then it turns toward each other and you start picking at each other and you start getting irritated with each other and you start like the you're not supporting each other anymore you're talking behind each other's backs you're getting you know it's just getting sideways and that was happening in 2014 on the road where it was just getting uglier and uglier for me because I'm trying to I'm basically trying to manage the whole thing with Mike Gilbert and, and like logistics the the tours everything trying to be the business guy and feeling overwhelmed and my wife's at home her sister just got um kids taken away from cps in february i'm in europe and she's like hey i want to take the boys i'm like hey whatever you need to do so now she has six kids at home by herself i'm on the road mm. And I talk to her every night and I can see she's struggling because she thinks she thinks I'm out here having all this fun. Right. And granted, yes, there is some, but my internal world is not at all. I'm coming apart. I'm just trying to get through the tour. I'm just trying to tolerate this new band that's on our bus because we're sharing it with somebody else that and the party's going. And I'm seeing similar things that I saw before that. I have a hard time holding on to because I know everybody's families and certain what's going on in some situations. And I have to see these people and I have to hold these secrets and I have to, that's eating at me and I miss my wife and that's eating at me. And, um, so it becomes just men, uh, you know, with the bullying thing, this is where trauma starts to come back and I still don't see it, but I'm surrounded by, the same environment that I grew up in. I'm cause I'll try to get into the little nitpicky, you know, knock you down kind of, Hey, I'm, I'm going to knock you a notch. I'm going to knock you a notch. You know, it just starts going like that. And I lose right away because I cannot do it. It just, I can't do it. Then I start to feel attacked and victimized. And then I start defending and then it just gets, you know, I just curl up into a fetal inside. So I'm just trying to get through the tour. And the guys at this point know that, I'm in, I'm not in a good place. Like I'm staying. So I'm in, I'm in this hotel room in Paris in 2014 and everybody gets to rotate where we have one room or one. And I get that room and I've got all the windows, you know, I mean, it's dark. I don't want to get out of bed. My depression's really bad. And all I can think about was how can I hang out this window and just end it right here? Just utter misery. Like how did it go from, you know, when you look at the timeline as a kid, it was the thing that saved me. And here I am back in it. And it seems to be bigger than it ever was. And I just want to die because I can't see anything good there anymore. You know, my I get home from tour, uh, I think it was in July or August. My wife's dad passes away in August. Her sister passes away in October. Her mom goes into the hospital in November and almost dies. And that's when I was like, in good conscience, I cannot leave this woman where she's at with all this, you know? You had a second chance to do it right, and you did. Yeah. I, I chose her over the band this time. And also, I chose me. 
because I, I was suffering and pride was keeping me from saying it. And also, you know, she has never tried to change one part of me. She's always loved me exactly as I am and honored that. And that meant something to me. And it's like, I have to honor this for her. She needs me. And I can't, I cannot just walk away and go, yeah, I'll be on tour, I'll see you soon. You know, deal with it. Um, based on the trauma that she had to go through before she met me too. You know, she had other things on board. And, uh, you know, just like my dad, her dad was that person for her. And she was with him alone when he passed. Mm. And uh, in 2015, she had open heart surgery. We spent Thanksgiving at uh, Cleveland Clinic having Thanksgiving dinner after heart surgery. So, I mean, we've been through a lot of stuff, bankruptcy. Um, but, yeah, I left the band just because it was it came down to some serious choices. It's like, is the band really going where I want it to go? Am I being the person that I want to be anymore? You know, it's kind of like it wasn't working anymore. I'm 50 years old. What am I doing? You know, I'm, you're, you have four kids. You have a wife. You have responsibilities. Maybe it was uh, one of those midlife crisis things. I don't know. I don't regret what we did as a band. We, you know, and they're still going and they're doing great. You know, that when I came back to the band and I talked to Mike and I talked to AK, where they're at today is where I was hoping to get us to. Because when I left the first time, the person who filled my shoes did some good stuff. But after I got back in and I heard there was a lot of things where he, it became a hobby. It wasn't a serious thing and it damaged a lot of relationships, which I had to rebuild. And, uh, you know, so that has worked, you know, the band is doing really good. I'm really proud of them. Um, I'm amazed actually. Do you miss it? You know, the thing that I miss the most is, is like I'll get messages from other drummers on Facebook or in my messenger about what impact being in Flotsam has done for them. Um, I miss the fans. What the, you know, knowing that something that you were a part of or that you helped create changed somebody else's life, that's what it's all about. It's like, did I leave a mark on the earth that was valuable, that helped people get get closer to where they want to be or help them like when I was a kid, you know, music helped me survive, you know, and those musicians like Kiss and, you know, uh, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, all those guys that gave me something bigger to, to look at, to look toward, to work towards something to pull me out of the depths of where I was, they have no idea. That's just a hope that we all have as musicians that, you know, am I going to, is this going to happen? Is, you know, and that isn't really between me and them. That's between God and them, mm -hmm. you know, because music to me is all about the spirit and how it touches you based on what you're hearing or what, like I was saying earlier, people might, think it's weird that Lauren Daigle is one of my favorite artists. You know, she's a Christian artist. But that song you say, when I heard the lyrics, I just broke down and started crying because that's where I was at that moment. 
she was speaking directly into my heart. And that's what makes a successful musician is when you can reach people that way, you know, or you can actually heal somebody that you don't even know. That's true. And I think you guys as Flotsam have left your mark on Mm. a lot of people. Yeah. You know, whether I know a lot of people have an issue with heavy metal, but you know, that's kind of what I grew up on. And to me, it was just this physical release being around heavy metal bands because you could scream at the top of your lungs and no matter what you were going through it just felt so damn good to hear the music loud in your face you know head banging screaming and yelling to the song singing them back there was nothing quite like it for me you know there was nothing else in this world and like you I grew up where I didn't have a voice but music gave me that place to feel like I belonged to something even bigger. Correct, yeah. And that's what you guys did. You opened up that world for so many of us when we were younger because we had that teenage angst. We didn't know what to do with it. And if we weren't partying, doing drinking drugs, having sex with everyone, the music was the thing that brought us all together. And I don't care how old you were, how young you were, what color you were, what sexuality you were. We were all there as one. And there was just something so cool about when the music would start and you would get those goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you know how that is. I mean, Beat It still does it for me. The guitar, when Eddie Van Halen hits that lead, Mm -hmm. it just gets me every time. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's a tone or what, but like um, Sarah McLaughlin, the first time I saw her, her voice mm, it's haunting. pierced me. It's so haunting. You know, and it's, it's, it's random how that works, but it's a guitar lead. It's a voice where the tone will hit me and I'll just get goosebumps all over or I'll get emotional. I mean, there was a time when I was, uh, when Jason was, Metallica was playing here in America West and it was their first two times. And I'm, on, I'm there with my dad in the snake pit. You know, and people are, what's this guy doing here? He's got a cigar and his arms across. <laughs> but I was so emotional of the fact that that was my friend on stage and he made it. I would, I would, it was hard not to get emotional because I was just so, I, I don't know if that's joy or what, but the emotion that I felt being happy for him overwhelmed me. Because somebody that I knew actually did it, you know, I saw, you know, just, I can't explain it, but it was overwhelming emotion of, I guess, joy, you know. That's Um, your brother. Right. Yeah. But you, you made it too. Yeah. You made it too. You were up on that stage playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people all across the world. Yep. You have to give yourself a pat on the back for that because it is not an easy journey, as you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a price to pay. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, I was thinking about it today on the way here. It's like originally the idea behind playing drums and getting, I mean, my mom said that I rocked my head, rocked in time and I would bang my head onto the crib in time. Like I was born a drummer, but the motivation that eventually quit working was that was a way I was going to become bigger than the bullies. It was power. I'm going to be big enough and you're going to come to my shows and I'm going to look down at you and I'm going to spit in your face. You know, it was about vengeance. 
but it still motivated me. And maybe um, over time that idea went away, but at some point it, something stopped working, you know. I'm, it's actually funny because um, I've been in contact with that bully, that Pacific bully. I became friends with his brother, and we're still friends today. And he doesn't even like his brother, but, <laughs> um, you know, I still don't forget. And sometimes the bullies don't even remember what they did to uh, who. Last time I saw him, I actually ran into him one place, and he still had this look on his face like he remembered. Mm. You and showed I, them, didn't you? Yeah, I'd let him have it. He didn't, I mean, from what I understand, his life isn't, he, it's kind of the karma has chewed away at him. So that unfortunately, uh, you know, if you don't look at it and heal it, it will eat you alive from the inside out. And that's kind of what, it, you know, like we've talked about, it's, it's living with the decisions and being powerless to some of the choices over time is what brings you to your knees. It's like, I don't like the way I'm acting. I don't like the way that I'm reacting. I don't like the way that I'm treating people. I don't like the way I'm thinking. I don't like these ideas that come into my head um, that I didn't ask for. And then they start to work to kill me, you know, or I just want to die because I cannot stop that from happening. And that's you know, the judgment, the self-judgment, the self-criticism, the self-demeaning, the self, you should be, you should be, you should be. Why are you doing this? Your wife's been through this. Why do you think that way? Why do you blah, 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 blah. That constant barrage of negativity that sometimes can become so overwhelming that you just want to just, the only way I can shut it off is to go to sleep or eat a bullet. Yeah, check out. And, uh, you know, because using isn't an option. It's like I've always said, just get to the point. Uh, you know, today I want to live. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's about fighting and being willing to set aside because it's about, a lot of it's about pride, but it's also that I grew up with self-reliance over and over and over and over and over again, knowing that self-reliance isn't working. How can you have an answer when you never had the answer? You know, banging your head against the wall hundreds and hundreds of times because you're trying to fix something you have no idea how to fix, but you just want it to stop. And that's self-reliance. That's not God-reliance. That's not opening up and being honest with somebody and saying, hey, man, I need help because I'm dying. I am dying. And being afraid that the response you're going to get is worse than what it really is. I mean, that's, that's the struggle, you know, where you're just trying to save your own life. That's the trauma that people don't see. Right. And you don't want them to see because of, especially today. I mean, look at the, the social media. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be comments about this. Um, That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Because it's, it's about opening the dialogue. It's about not being afraid to talk about things because most people sweep it under the rug. But, you know, we have to get to that place where it's okay to talk about it. And the fear of judgment, as you're saying from others, it's like, you know what? Screw you if you have a problem with this. This is me. This is what's happened. This is how I deal with it until we start opening that dialogue. You know, you guys, musicians, are the perfect people to open the dialogue because so many people feel like they're so alone. They have nowhere to go. They have no one to talk to. And music is that opening thing for them. So if a musician who has gone through trials and tribulations like so many of us others 
can't be human enough to share their story, then what the hell are we doing? Right. You know, that's, that's our testimony to what we've gone through. And if we make it to the other side from the darkness into the light, it doesn't mean that we're not going to hit that dark point often through that light. It just means that we've been on the other side of it and we can continue to grow and heal ourselves because we're, we're never going to be perfect. No, not until we're dead and gone. Cause then we can't make any mistakes. We can't hurt anyone. We can't hurt ourselves when we're at that point. But while we're still alive, we're going to feel, we're going to go through shit. We can heal from that. We can help others. And that's, that's why we do what we do here at get real. Because if you can't get real and talk about shit, what are we doing? Right. You know, that's, that's why I'm really appreciative that you came here today to tell your story because even though you walked away from flotsam you're still doing things music wise to help others you haven't given up that music side of you no in fact i'm still doing stuff in uh with our we just actually this week i just got a uh, 12 inch single uh that someone produced or someone took and made a picture disc for us in europe so uh, from doomsday. So, I mean, I'm still do, you know, I still deal with stuff in, from the old catalog. Um, you know, me and Mike Gilbert will get pinged and we'll work on stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's cool that, you know, after well, 1985, 1986, you know, we're coming up soon on 40 years. That's crazy. Um, still get, you know, they're not big, but I still get checks and I still have interest and they're still wanting to do stuff with that first record. And, you know, I mean, that that proves to me that we left a mark, you know, otherwise people wouldn't care, you know. Right. Um, so we still, there's still something there. Um, but, you know, when we were talking about what you were just saying, it's like the the goal for not feeling alone is to get involved. You know, I went to 12-step. I've been to therapy. I've been to Al-Anon, Co-Anon, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, you know, I'm starting ACOA. And the reason is, is because the reason those programs work, and it's funny because the 12 steps is the only thing that is, addiction is the only thing besides cancer that it will kill you most definitely. Cancer costs you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to mm-hmm. get healed from. 12 steps is free and people don't want it. They don't place value because it is free. Well, because of pride. Yeah, that too. Where I found out that I wasn't alone was there. When you hear somebody share your story and you go, wow, I didn't think anybody else thought that. And then you can have a conversation and then you start having a crowd as they say, the world will grow up around you in that environment if you allow it to you know it's like when when i first got into the sobriety they said you don't have to change anything just everything and that was kind of a scary thought but the thing is that the things that i didn't need were removed without my permission and it didn't hurt it just happened it was it was divinely removed and pretty soon everybody around me except for the band of course were sober people that were like-minded that were on the same path that were looking to grow some way spiritually over time. You know, and the, the struggle that I have, because I mean, even though I say that, I stepped way back after 2014 from all that, because all the stuff that was going on and, and uh, being in the band 
kind of got me sick because I had, you know, stopped work in that program for the most part. Um, I was writing something the other day when I was, I was driving to work and I'll, I'll write notes occasionally. And, um, you know, the thing that I found that's similar with church and, um, you know, I started going to men's church groups and, uh, and I looked at, uh, recovery is, uh, I said, so I had an awakening this morning that I don't know if I've had it before that the actions of others within the 12 steps caused me to be resentful because I took it as a reflection on me. Mm. And so that in the way that ties in for me and trauma is what I was saying, perfection. If they're bad, you think I'm bad, which means I, I can't be associated with you. And when you go through church and you start hearing the stories of how other men suffer with, their addictions and their, you know, uh, issues. And, you know, even when you see pastors come in and you start to see that we're all broken. Mm-hmm. And mm, the perfectionism, again, is there saying, I can only follow it if it's perfect because otherwise, whatever. I start wearing it as you're, you're a part of me, and if I look like that, I can't do it. No, so I started noticing the separate the, the disease has created a separation in me that says I can't be associated with that because you agree with that. I don't. Um, you know, and it, it's it's a weird awakening that I came to this last week about that is that's wrong. That's delusional. It's like we're all broken. My job is to love others like I have been loved. You know, I got grace through Christ. I have to give grace because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to determine what that means. I'm not supposed to, you know, the whole thing is about love, period. It's true. That's very true because love and kindness, you know, showing each other that even though we're all broken, and I think the broken ones know how to love the best because we came from a place of not being loved and we had to learn how to love ourselves which is not easy. It's so difficult, especially when we're being raised in those environments. We're not taught how important self-love is. And going out there in the world, trying to figure that out, thinking that people love us when they really don't, but allowing those certain circumstances to come into our lives. And you and I had talked about this off the air, that you have to get to a point where you're realizing who the common denominator is in all these toxic, bad situations. Me. Yeah, because <laughs> we're so broken and screwed up because we're not, we're not seeing. We're just trying to find that piece of love for ourselves, but not understanding that we're not even loving ourselves. We're just drawing the wrong energies to us. Right. Which uh, used to baffle me that I was always, a, and that's probably my Alanonism too, is that I, I'm attracted to people that aren't good for me sometimes. Well, misery loves company or even the fact that we think they understand us because they're in the same way of thinking that we are. Well, I've noticed in relationships that aren't good with me when they end, the struggle is how can I fix it? There's gotta be something like, um, you know, the, the, the second marriage was, was not good for either one of us, but I was always baffled at, you know, Maybe I can fix that someday or, you know, I mean, even with, um, I can't remember, but there was always that thing of, 
it wasn't that they ended. It was that, was it something I could have fixed? Can I fix it? Can I just, you know, I need to know that I made it. You know, it's this weird, and it's probably my sickness of, you know. Um, it's called being human. Right. Because we question that consistently. And then you finally get to a point where you realize I did fix it by ending it. Because we didn't deserve to do that to each other. And I have found going into my 50s that sometimes you have to just walk away. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's better for everyone involved not to continue that negative process and all that toxicity. And it's not that either person is an asshole. It's the fact that it's not working between the two of you, whether it's a relationship, a friendship, something in your family. And sometimes you just have to separate to allow each person not to be within that toxic atmosphere. And it, it's not even us or the other person. It's just we're not, we're not connecting. We're clashing. So off, you know, you hear this a lot, people who get married and then they get divorced, they're better friends as they are divorced than when they were married. Right. And they can co-parent successively because they don't have that toxic level of being in each other's face every day anymore. So sometimes we have to understand that even though it's in our genetic material to try to fix something, sometimes fixing just means walking away and letting it go. Yeah. I've had to do that with my mother. It's not easy. At some point that, um, I have to limit my time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the and, energy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that's a hard pill to swallow, especially when you're running out of parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you have those friends who say, you're so lucky you still have your parents. And it's like, it's, it's not what you think it is. And I had one argue with me last week that I need to hug my mom every single day. And I'm like, dude, I can't get in that space. I will hug her if the moment calls for it. Mm -hmm. But to be in that space with her, it's not that I don't love her and I don't hate her. I'm just indifferent because Mm -hmm. you have to get to a place where you can coexist, but not have so much negativity and toxicity on the daily with, with one of them. So it's, I really truly envy people that have those wonderful relationships because I, I grew up where I didn't, as you have talked about your relationship. And it's, you know, I'm really grateful that you came in today to, to share some of this with us. So where are you today? What's going on in your life now? Um, well, there's one thing I was going to share before, cause you hit, hit on something first. Um, okay, go for it. Which was a lesson that I got from my wife. And, um, when I met her, you know, her family is despite the dysfunction that we all have in a family was her dad and her mom. When he passed away, they were still married and she had sisters and brothers. And, you know, I started, there was a grief process that I went through because I started to see what I missed, you know, and cause I would look at her family and I go, you know, it's really chaotic, but the traditions that they have and the love that they have despite it all and the things that they went through, they're still going through, you know, because they lost two of their sisters. Um, she's lost two of her sisters. And um, always wanting to have that and knowing that, you know, you're 56, you're not going to have that. You know, it's almost like a, I would imagine, because I'm not a woman, but always wanting to have a baby and never having one. Right. And that thing of, you know, uh, so I'm grateful that I have her because she has shown me that in our family with her kids because I took on three of her kids, you know? Um, and so, um, the, the lesson, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's a lesson, but it, 
in those tough times when I was going through, like I was telling you earlier, um, my current therapist says like a lot, what's going on with me right now to kind of bring it back is that a lot of my reactions that are happening with me are because they're going through the filter of history. So they're not exactly true what I'm seeing, but the reaction time is too fast for me to stop. So in growing up with, in this relationship, which we're going to be uh, 15 years married this month, um, I took on her three kids because I was trying to get what I didn't have initially. And then as it grew over time, I started to really get what that meant. And I would catch myself getting angry about why do I have, you know, I just want to be with my wife. I don't want these three kids. And it's just like, wait a minute, you signed up for this. Mm -hmm. You signed up for this. This is what you wanted. And you said some vows and you did some things. So that has always been the, the one that writes the ship for me is like, this wasn't, you're not a victim. You signed up. So you're the one that's got to work on this. You're the one who's got to face this. You're the one who's got to accept this. And, and it kind of was kind of neat because it's, you know, when I, when I left my son at 18 months is when I met my wife, her youngest was 18 months. Wow. So God replaced what I thought I had lost for the second time. Cause like when I got arrested and I got out of prison, my dad said, well, what do you want to do? Well, I can either do a trade, you can either do a trade or go to school. And I said, why would I go to school? I'm a felon. Nobody's going to hire me. So I did construction for 17 years thinking of that truth. And I met my second wife, got an IT career and that truth changed. But I hung on to that for 17 years, believing that that was all I was ever going to be. That you weren't good enough to be anything but that. Because of a crime. Yeah. So, you know, those are the things that I've kind of, um, I've had to look at. And so coming up in this next year, um, because I've been through, you know, I'm going to be 34 years sobriety in November or uh, October this year. You know, I've been in Allen on 20 years. Um, those things are great and they have their purpose, but they don't always get everything. And this stuff from my childhood and my therapist talks about that sometimes it comes out later in life, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. And it's been creeping into my life slowly over time and it's become, you know, and I think it started in 2014 and I just coming to the full focus that this trauma stuff has to be dealt with. So I'm, I'm, I'm going in deep to try to finally completely free myself from the bondage of these things that have stuck to me that haven't been resolved. Um, these, these, uh, like I said, the breath that I can't stop from breathing out of me. Um, so I'm seeking still on a deeper level to resolve and find some, some, some joy. And, uh, you know, so I can love the people better than I'm loving them now. Cause I'm definitely falling short in a lot of areas that I feel I'm falling short. Um, you know, cause I don't want to be the parent that shows up like my mom and dad did. They were there. They showed up, they got me food, they got me drink, you know, I had a place to live, didn't go without, without a want, but the connection was always the problem. The trusting that what they said was going to be real. Like, you know, no one ever, uh, I remember after the divorce, my parent, I came home, my mom didn't say, how was your day today? 
Let's look at your homework. How are you doing in school? Kind of like a disconnect. Yeah. It was just like, well, he's got food and a place to sleep. We're okay. You know, and that's, like I said, it's not the fault. My mom was doing what she had to do in order to make her feel safe in her world. And unfortunately, that happened to me. But I can't live there. You can't live there. I'm 56. That was when I was, what, 11? You know, and I remember, you know, there was a lot of times in my life through the band and all that stuff. None of this stuff was there for me. You know, so it's kind of seeped to the surface. Like, you know, um, over time, it just keeps coming up towards the surface and it's like a splinter that's infected. And now we're, we're, we got to get this out of here because it's, it's, it's infecting me and it's affecting my life. And, and I really want to move on. You know, I really want to become something different and it's not so much what's happening to my life. It's how I'm looking at it. That's affecting me. It's how it's internalized in me. That's affecting me. It's um, my actions from it that are affecting me. So that's kind of where it's at. So you're still on the the journey of healing. Yeah, which mm. I don't know if it's a. Uh, I could say it's. I don't know if it's frustrating or not, but it's. It seems like um, when you think you're done, something else comes up. And I, I remember somebody sharing. I picked it up somewhere where it's like you have seven seal drums for the seven deadly sins, but you only have six lids. So you're always chasing one, you know, but at some point my, I would like to find, I mean, I I think I have peace with most of it. It's just the way that it reacts in my body that I'm really having a hard time with. I'm like, I'm an acceptance that yes, I'm broken. And yes, these things cause issues. And there's things that I'm not happy that have happened in my life, but I can't change them. You can only change how you perceive them now. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I'm really proud of you for being so open and honest about it because there's so many that don't talk about it. So, you know, for you being so honest and vulnerable and sharing everything you have today, that's a gift in itself. And the more and more you continue to share that story, it will help you heal, but you never know who's going to hear this or see your words, or see anything you've done moving forward, who's going to use that as their instruction manual to find their way to healing as well. So your words are very important, just so that you understand that. And for you to trust me today by sharing these things here in this platform, I am I am grateful for you for doing that. My heart is just so full today in hearing you smile. I mean, I could see you. <laughs> I see you smiling, and I can hear it in your words. I see where your journey is taking you. And we're not finished yet. We keep going. And every day is a new day of healing. We have a setback. We experience those bad emotions. We experience beautiful emotions. But it all centers around trying to find our true happiness. And it sounds like you're, uh, you're on your way to that. Hoping so. We should tell them the story about how I even got here. <laughs> yeah, we could do that, can't we? Yeah. So... Uh... I uh, was off work on the 22nd, I believe, of December. And uh, I had purchased a exercise bike from an auction. I went there to go pick it up. And uh, there was a printer there. My brother just retired, and he's a master printer. And I was like, called him up. I'm like, hey, you want me to grab this printer? So 
He says, sure. Well, I have a short bed truck, and this is longer than my bed, so I didn't calculate, and we smashed the back window. Uh, when we loaded it, it wasn't me and my brother. It was the guy there. So drove that to his house. Um, I called my um, the guy who usually does my window. It turns out he passed away. So I got his partner. And uh, your son happened to show up at my house to fix my window. And, he, you know, he's long-haired long-haired dude from i'm like hey you from arizona he's like yeah i'm like hey, you ever heard of flotsam he's like yeah i think my mom has too <laughs> and so he called you and you know we we had this big old 45 minute conversation while he's working on my truck and next thing you know here i am yeah that was just truly amazing he he hands me the phone you know or he goes hey mom you ever heard of this guy kelly smith and i'm like you know the name sounds familiar and then you're on the phone and we're having this conversation like we're we're buddies who used to sit down and talk all the time and and I know you don't remember me because I was one of those stupid kids that was hanging out at the you know the thing and you had all these things going on but I mean you were a badass drummer just so that you know that were well you probably <laughs> I haven't heard you play in a long time no you're but, you're right I was I, well you probably still are because I mean I know you teach people and stuff you still do things with the youth right. Uh, not anymore, but not anymore? No, okay. I used to, but yeah, see a thing about that. Um, I did drywall while we were doing draw, um, in 20 or 1992, Neil Kernan had left Seattle on his way to Phoenix to start the Quattro record. I'm at work doing drywall. I'm on drywall stilts. I got this thing called a bazooka. It's about 30, 20 pounds of mud in it. I trip and fall forward, break both my elbows. Ooh, not good for a drummer. Not on the day of pre-production. Ooh. So I hit the ground. I can't hear anything. I'm in shock. Um, they roll me over. My boss had to take me to the, you know, workman's comp. You know, the band guys, a couple of the band guys come in. They're just up and down me like, what are you thinking? I can't believe he did this. And I'm, I'm double slinged. I'm crying because you're shredding me. You know, I have no idea that, to me, my life just ended. I'm not going to be able to play drums. That's what was in my head. I'm, I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm done. And I'm on MCA, and this is my life, and it just stopped. So I was playing drums in 10 days, by the way. Damn. Because uh, I told them, you know, uh, physical therapy, I need to get this fixed. I don't care how you do it, but I'm going to do whatever it takes. They flew in Gar Samuelson, who is no longer in Megadeth, to take my place. And unfortunately, he could not play the parts. And so while they were trying to teach him the parts, I was in the, uh, we had a separated, a room was separated into two areas. So I'm in the back just playing my drums, playing, just hitting stuff. And I've had to walk in my bass player. Jason Ward was showing him how to play it, and he couldn't play it. So eventually I got back in there. But that not taking the time to heal caused issues down the road. Or my shoulders, because my shoulders got injured, but we didn't treat my shoulders. Um, so holding my arm up can become very difficult for me. So and that's part of the reason, you know, physically challenged by 2014, it was harder and harder for me to physically due to just her pain uh, and the struggle of keeping my arm up, play. And uh, like I said earlier, I kind of have this black and white thing in me about the music, and I'm hoping that when I get through this work in the next year, that that's going to change because 
I do enjoy playing other people's stuff, like Rush. I love playing Neil because he was one of the oh, one of the greatest. Yeah, but I'm hoping that that passion will come back. I ha- I did play at the church for a minute, um, but I don't know what it is. But I'm like, uh, if it's not flotsam, I can't do it. My because it's all in. I'm either we're going to the wall or I'm not playing at all. It's like I can't find that middle ground that says it's okay to just play at home and play. Because I'm like, well, I could be doing other things. Why am I wasting my time? Because this isn't going to, this isn't building my career. It's like, you don't have one anymore. You know, and I did teach at School of Rock for a while. And then uh, I got a full-time IT position, which took me out of that role. But, and since then, it's just been spotty. Uh, my son still plays. I have an electronic kit in my office that he keeps going, hey, did you play today? Did you play today? And I'm like, no, not yet. You know, so I'm hoping that that comes back. I still play on my steering wheel all the time. You know, <laughs> and I noticed you were playing in here earlier yeah. too. <laughs> so I mean, it's—I was born with it, but for some reason, I haven't found the utility for it. Like I haven't found the reason that I need to play, or I don't know what the problem is. There's something there that says no, and I don't. There's just some healing that obviously I'm not sure what that is yet. That. You know, and then maybe it's that perfectionism because when I did join the church, the problem with me was I had to learn the song perfectly because I believe as a drummer, when you come to see a band, you want to see exactly. And I used to say that to the Flotsam guys because sometimes the lead guys would do whatever they want. I'm like, no, dude, every concert that I go to, I want to hear that thing that I heard on the record. I want to hear it exact. And so it's hard for me to negotiate. And that's probably the imperfection thing again. Mm-hmm. I can't go in there and do a cheese job. It has to be epic and perfect, or it's just not worth it. That's being called a true musician. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even playing the Christian music, when I would go in there, if it's, you know, uh-uh. It's, if I can't play it like it's on the record, then I really jerk. it really just jerks my chain inside. Like, it's like, oh, I can't do this because... And also, it's that there's an ego behind it that says, I came from this level. I cannot go below it. Understandable. And, and I cannot let my fans see below that. They can't see that I'm not where I was or what their opinion of me is. You know, it's like if you know somebody when they're healthy and then they die, you don't want to go to their funeral because you want to remember them where they were at. And I don't know. If that's probably a lot of ego wrapped up in that, a lot of pride. or I'm not sure what it is really, but I know it's been a struggle for me. Well, your fans are going to love you no matter what. And I think after they hear this side of you, they're going to be even more appreciative of what you brought to the table, not only as the drummer from Flotsam and Jetsam, but as Kelly. Now they got Ken Mary, machine. I love Ken. Yeah, he's a great guy. He is a great guy. Go Flotsam. Wow. You know, this has been one hell of a conversation. And I can't thank you for... My jaw hurts. No, I, know, I know, right? Well, we, we spent a good amount of time talking before we turned the damn thing on and started recording. I'm like, Jesus, this is the stuff we need to be talking about. I so, was kind of wondering, but you know, you're running the show. Hey, you know what? I tell everybody, look, you can tell me to shut up at any time and we can get this thing started. I just, I'm so, it's like when you sit down with some of the, the greatest people out there that you see up on stage and the lights are off and you're looking at each other sitting across the table from one another and you're like, this is the kind of stuff that makes life worth living because you get to see the real human being 
not the person that has the facade going on with all the stage lighting and the songs and the records and everything. This is, this is what matters to me, knowing who you are as a person and seeing what's behind it all. And I think that's where we don't get to see enough of that. We, we put people up on stage and idolize them and don't realize just how human they are and just how much shit they've been through and what they've worked through in their life. So for me, I commend you for doing that. So thank you so much for doing that today. I really appreciate it. You know what? You brought up another thing, man. Did I? I? Did I? That's okay. Facade. Um, I can never, still it's hard for me today to play by myself. That's why I only did one drum solo my entire career. Because I never thought I was good enough. Mm. So... It's easy to play when you got a band and a drummer in front, uh, a band and a set of drums in front of you. But when people would say, you know, come to my house and say, hey, man, can you play something? I'd say no. Because, wow. you know, even when, um, you know, uh, the drummers that have tried to replace me, I would get frustrated because why can't you play those parts? They're not hard. I'm not that, you know, I'm not that. Wow. And they're all telling me, you're not, you, you're, that's not true. I'm like, well, to me, it's, it's kind of seems like, you know, because I could never match up to what I wanted to be or what I thought was a good drummer. So, I mean, it's still hard for me today to, you know, it's that thing of be small, don't be seen, because then you're not responsible, then you're not in trouble. If you're in trouble, then you get hurt, blah, 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 blah. And it was there through all that drumming. I did one, I think it was the U-Fest, when we played at Compadre Stadium. And I did my first, I did my only solo live ever never did one i would not because i just did not have faith that i could or that i was capable of that you know and also was having all that attention on me was not comfortable wow so when you said facade i was like oh yeah there's that thing Mm -hmm. that that belief system that says if it's not a perfect drum solo you can't do it and that's not how we as fans view it we want to hear you do it regardless because it's kick-ass and I have a lot of drummer friends who have played in local bands here who look up to you and respect you for what you brought to the table. So even when you don't believe that, you have made a difference in a lot of people's lives because even though they were struggling with being behind their kit, they would listen to you and get that inspiration to do a little bit better each day. And those are, like I said, that's the gifts that I get from drummers out there that when they send me their story of how they discovered and, and those things. And I've supported, like, um, that band we were just talking about. Um, I got one of their shirts, Steve, uh, Eden. Oh, Images of Eden. Images of Eden. Yeah. Yes, we had friend. a great, we had a great conversation on, on Facebook and good friends of mine. Yeah. Steve. And, uh, yeah. Steve Dorsum. It was I felt really good watching them do their tour. This, you know, they've been, well, I've been following them, watching them, watching they grow. And it's nice to see. It's almost like, and I don't know if Surgical Steel and Icon felt that way about us, but it's, it's seeing the, the growth of Phoenix. Like, you know, there was Sacred Reich, there was us, uh, uh, basically the only bands that really traveled and could continue to career, you know, Icon and Surgical Steel kind of stopped mm-hmm. and uh, Sacred and us continued on and made kind of took it to the next level and it's nice to see these these bands start taking it to the next level to kind of passing the torch you know we've been doing it for 30 plus years and there really hasn't been a whole lot that came out that's still torching you know so it's good to see images of eden and those guys 
start and there's another band my son's uh was uh, friends with here that was just on a, a nation, nationwide tour as well i can't remember their name but um just to see the local scene picking up again and that phoenix they're carrying the name of phoenix and the, the name of metal um that for some reason makes me feel proud and and uh, you know i'm all for it i support it and uh you know and steve dorsum is one of those guys that gave up the band life when he got married and raised his son and when his son became of age they got back on the road and toured and that's why they're doing what they're doing they're in their 40s and 50s yeah you gotta love that they can still kick ass and and do rock and roll and metal and i just love those guys well especially today with the the scene as torched it it is because of online you yeah know i mean the internet broke i think more than it ever fixed but um it took you know um it's destroyed the movie business, the record business, and you know, a record now is more or less a token right. of your appreciation because as soon as you put it out, it's being ripped off. That's very true. Very so, true. But yeah, I'm just saying, anybody local that's that's doing what they're doing and they're they're getting out there, you know, more power to them, and I support it 100. percent And uh, yeah, like I said, I've been watching those guys, and I'm I'm proud of them. So I'm gonna have to let them know you gave them a shout out. <laughs> That is so cool. Kelly, this has been a Too very, long. it's been an awesome, <laughs> no, no, it's been an awesome conversation. And I am so grateful again that you came in today to uh, do this with me and uh, meddle up, right? Yeah. Isn't that the, the horns up? Yep. <laughs> Ronnie James Dio. That's right. In memory of Ronnie James Dio. So thank you again for, for sharing all that. And it's been a pleasure. Mine too. Thank you. All right, guys, as always. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.